Between work, family, and life, going to the grocery store can be a major inconvenience. With ButcherBox, you'll be saving yourself precious time that's better spent elsewhere. ButcherBox offers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range chicken, pork that's raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. Translation, no antibiotics or hormones are added to your food, and you can rest assured you're not eating weird chemicals. Plus, ButcherBox is a certified B Corp, which means they meet the highest standards regarding their social and environmental impact. Even better, your ButcherBox orders are shipped directly to your door for free. And you can customize your plan, so all you need to do is place your order and wait for exactly what you want to be brought right to you for free. They also have tasty recipes and cooking tips to make mealtime easier. We use ButcherBox at our house and we couldn't have been happier with all the delicious options. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of a weeknight meal essential. Three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at butcherbox.com lisk and use code lisk to choose your free offer and get $20 off. Again, go to butcherbox.com lisk, L-I-S-K, and use code lisk to get 20% off today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Mopac Audio. A note to listeners, the following podcast contains content that may not be suitable for all audiences. Thank you for joining us for this special episode of Lisk, Long Island Serial Killer. We had the opportunity to spend some time on a call with Missy Can. She's the sister of victim Maureen Brainerd Barnes, who we featured in episode four. Back when we started this project, Missy wasn't able to be involved as she was especially busy with her youngest child's time-consuming medical needs. Things today have settled somewhat, so Missy reached out to us, and we were honored to get to talk to her about Maureen, along with all the work Missy's been doing to shine a light on the case. Well, let's go back a second, and just from a sister's point of view, tell us a little bit about your sister, about Maureen. You know, because I hear from different things, or I read Lost Girls, but just finally getting to talk to you, um, I'd love to just hear just some insight on who your sister was. Well... There was the three musketeers, I guess. <laughs> so there's, and it's hard to explain who Maureen was without explaining us, meaning me, my brother, and my sister. So my sister was the oldest, and I was the middle, and I'm the middle child, and my brother was the youngest. And Maureen was more, I don't know, girly, girly than I was. And she was more, she read books and she listened to music and I and my brother were athletic. So we played outside a lot while my sister kind of just like not stayed to herself, but stood outside reading books and discovering things. She, she always had to maintain education. She always wanted to enrich her mind in a way. So as growing up, she would read books to me because I struggled reading when I was younger. And so she would read a lot of the Shel Silverstein books to me. That was like her favorite. She had a whole bunch of them. 
And then um, scary stories to tell in the dark. She used to scare me with that one. <laughs> and then um, I was scared of thunderstorms and lightning. And my sister used to help me at night. Like, I know you read this from Lost Girls, but I would stay up all night, like looking at the radar. And I'd be like, oh, my gosh, like it's going to thunder. I'm so scared. And she was like, okay, you sleep with me. So I would sleep with her and she would cover my ears. And I'm like, but I could see the lightning. And she's like, just shut your eyes. <laughs> so that was us as kids. And as we got older and had kids of our own, I mean, of course we fought. Like when we were younger, we, we argued and fought about everything and anything. But I think as we got older and more mature, we got closer and we would have Sunday dinners and of course those Sunday dinners would be at my house and my brother would come and my sister and we would have Sunday dinners and my door was always open for my siblings. They always came in and Maureen did too. And she lived with me for a few months. I don't know, about six months. She moved out around like four or five months before she went missing. So she lived with me for like six months prior to that. And um, we got along well. And that's when she worked with Sarah at the telemarketing place. And she kind of was doing well. And she got her own apartment. Like all the memories come up like bits by bits. It's not so much of a timeline. It's so much like you have to remember the bits by bits because sure. it's been so long. But like I don't like forget them. They just come up. But I remember like for Christmas, she would always get us a book. And of course, my brother never read them. But like after she went missing, he read the book. And it was about this man that like was down as luck and got divorced and he was an alcoholic and he crashed his car. He was really bangled up and he went to go walk to the old town that he lived in where his mom had raised him, but his mom had died at this point in time. And he's just staring in the window and his mom opens the door. And basically the story, the moral of the story was to appreciate what you have before it's gone. And I remember my brother coming back to the house and he was like, I finally read the book that Maureen gave me for Christmas. And like, this is awesome. Maureen went missing. And he is, his whole face is like soaking tears. And I was oh. just like, why? What's wrong? And Will was like, you got to read this book. And I didn't read the book. I couldn't read the book until my brother died. And I was like in his house. I gave him back the book because I didn't have time to read it. So I found the book and I finally read it and I was just like, it's crazy. <laughs> well, wow. But yeah, she was really like the spontaneous one too, especially after I had kids, I was more like uncle down and she had kids before me, but I had more kids at that point in time. And I was a single mother. So I was more like conservative and matter of factly type of person at that point in time. And Murray was more spontaneous so like when she came around it was always fun because she always came up with good ideas like let's go get grinders and let's put in in the park with the kids and it really was like a breath of fresh air having her around it was a good time I really miss like having that because it sucks not yeah. having that anymore sorry I don't mean to cry I just miss my brother and sister a lot uh, do not apologize. I realize we have a, 
a bit in common because I have an older sister and a younger brother. And growing up, you know, like you said, we fight and we didn't get along and, you know, but now I still have them, thank God. And um, one lives in Norway, my younger brother, and, and my sister lives in Missouri, but we're really close. And so I can't imagine being without it, you know. Um, so I am, don't apologize and I'm sorry. No, it's okay. For a while, I didn't know how to go on with life. Because you, my sister was only two years older than me, and my brother was 13 months young, younger than me. So I lived my whole life with them. When Maureen was found, it was like, I don't have no one. So, but I got better. I got stronger. I was able to be able to become like more able to like know like when things aren't right. And know when to speak up. I learned that through like advocating for my sister and advocating for the fact that she was a human being that really was just like you and me. She just decided to make her money a different way. She really does help guide me, especially on the times that like I need to be focused and, and advocate, especially for my son, because when you, you have a child that has a rare disease, doctors don't know you know exactly what that disease is and how it is learning to be vocal in her case helped me learn to be vocal to advocate for my son so i mean i guess in a way something good came out of the experience i've had yeah i've been to high, my daughter's high school and talked to the women's studies classes about the dangers of online escorting as well as meeting people that you don't know online i like trying to help girls that are younger but are almost to adulthood if you could help one girl understand and be more aware of the outside world then i think that i done my job Wow, that is amazing because I, I have heard, you know, over the years that you are kind of shy or you, you were, but speaking to schools yeah. and speaking up for Dominic, that's really great. That's really great. Here, Missy and I discuss Maureen's timeline, beginning back in 2007 and the night she disappeared in New York City. I didn't hear from Maureen on Saturday, which was, you know, normal. Sometimes we didn't talk every day. Especially when she was in New York, she didn't really call. But on Sunday, it was Sunday at 11.30, 11.45 at night. And this is July 8th. I was laying in bed next to my boyfriend at that time, which is my husband now. And um, my phone rang. And I, it's Maureen. So I answer it. And Maureen's like, hey, you think Chris could come get me? Because I don't drive. Um, I got in a car accident when I was 17, and I was put on life support. Uh, I almost died, so I just never drove. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I was like, uh, Maureen, it's 11.45 at night. We're in Norwich. Like, where are you? And she was like, I'm at Penn Station. Um, I'm trying to get home because someone robbed me. And I was like, what do you mean someone robbed you? She was like, someone stole all my money. She goes, I have a little bit because I had it still upstairs in the, in the hotel. But she was like, I 
don't want to really spend it. And I was like, I, so you had to call Will because Chris is already sleeping. So she was like, all right. And she hung up the phone. She didn't seem in distress. So she calls Will and Will also had to work too. So like he couldn't because we lived about a good two and a half without traffic, maybe almost three hours away. She calls me back and says, well, Will can't pick her up, but she has a few other people that she could call that she'll see. But if not, she'll take the train, that she'll just use the money that she has to take the train home. I said, okay, I love you. I was like, call me in the morning. And she was like, all right, I love you too. Next morning comes and I go to work and I come home and I'm like, well, Marie didn't call me. So I called her phone. It rang, rang, rang. No one, she didn't answer. I'm like, something's wrong here. It wasn't until Tuesday that I called, I believe I called one of Maureen's friends. And I was like, have you heard from Maureen? And she was like, no. She was like, actually, she was like, Maureen hasn't came back. And thinking about reporting Maureen's missing. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, is she, like, she's really missing? Like, so then I kept on calling her. My brother kept on calling her. Because I called my brother. I was like, have you heard from Maureen? And he was like, no. I was like, this is weird. So that's when we realized Maureen wasn't coming back. I sat there and me and my brother just sat there looking at each other. Like where, what happened? Like, how didn't she come home? So I went armed with my sister's email and her password. Well, at first it was her MySpace account I logged into, which then I remembered her email account and her passwords and I started logging into that and that's when I took a nosedive and a really quick course and what Maureen really was doing in New York and it shocked not only me but my brother <laughs> we were just really shocked and at this point in time I knew something was seriously wrong she was reported to Norwich PD as missing and then they had said that we should report her missing to New York as well, since we don't know if she ever came back to Connecticut. So I started calling the New York City Police Department. I got pushed from one department to another department to another department because they didn't handle that side of New York City. Or this person didn't handle that section of New York City. And finally, I got a hold of the police department that covered that. And he had told me that he was going to do the missing person, found the missing person's case for her. And um, I just kind of left it like that, that, okay, these are police officers and they're, they're going to do right. Yeah. So with that said, I was still kind of did a timeline. I went onto her emails and I started writing down, all the emails and where these places were and where she was going to meet up with them. And a lot of it was like in calls. She never really kind of went out. Everything just went from activity to non-activity. So then Thursday or Friday of that week, my husband and my brother decided that they were going to take Maureen's picture with them. They were going to get on the bikes use a map that I printed out because back then they didn't really have too much well GPS devices and they were going to drive to New York City to 
the hotel she stood at because I knew the hotel that she stood at through her emails and they went there to try to figure out where she was. Mm-hmm. So they went to the hotel and the hotel guys said that Maureen physically signed herself out. They were trying to look at the tapes, but they said that those tapes, there was no recording. They were just there for show. So then my brother asked to see where she signed herself out, and she did. She sure enough signed. It was her signature, and she, she signed. She checked herself out. So it was like you could see the activity, and then all of a sudden, it's that night. It's like she's gone. There's no activity through her emails. I got her phone records because I felt like I had to start investigating it because I felt like no one really was at this point of time. I started doing timelines of phone calls, voicemails, when she stopped picking up her phone and stuff like this. So that's where I got the block where it was like there was activity, activity, nothing. It was like, poof, she was gone. After that, my brother kind of had to, like, wiggle me out and was like, Miss, you can't keep on just, like, doing this. You're driving yourself crazy. Just trying to figure out where she would have went. And then about two weeks after she went missing, I get a call from the police department in New York City. And they said that they were coming to Connecticut to interview me and my brother exactly what we knew about her going missing and the timeline and stuff. Mm -hmm. My brother came over and we're waiting for the police department. And I'm like, they said they were internal affairs officers, Will. And he was like, yeah. And I'm like, you know what internal affairs officers are? And he goes, no. And I'm like, they're the police for the police. Why are they investigating her missing person? And it took me a while to catch on to why. And then I realized why. Um, so they came over, they interviewed me and my brother separately and they left. And, um, of course, throughout the three and a half years that Maureen was missing, there was not much activity or much to say between us and the police department, especially in internal affairs. We would call and they would say they're still working on it. Of course, they can't really tell us what was going on. But at this time, I was still kind of doing my own line investigation on the timelines of where her steps would be. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew that I knew that Sarah left that Sunday. I knew that she went back that week to look for Maureen because I could hear her calling Maureen on the voicemail looking for her. So I knew these things, but I didn't know exactly what, like I didn't have concrete evidence of where Maureen would have gone when she stopped communicating with people. And this was different because Maureen communicated with a lot of people. She was very talkative. So it was August of 2010 and we get a call from the internal affairs officers that are investigating Maureen's missing person's case. He says that there was remains found in New Jersey and that it is possible that these remains could be Maureen. Hmm. So they asked us to meet them at the Norwich Police Department. That's where we initially put Maureen's missing persons claim. And they wanted to do get our DNA to compare to the remains that were found that they thought was Maureen in New Jersey. So we did that. And of course, 
those remains weren't mine. But I think it was important to highlight the fact that the first remains that were found in the Gilgo Beach case were the first remains that ever been tested to think that it was Murray. Mm-hmm. It was another case as well. And at, the, and at this point of time, I started looking up why my sister's missing persons case wasn't like on any public forum. It didn't look like no one put her into NamUs. And all of a sudden, I saw that she was in NamUs and they had just like reported her through NamUs. There was no picture, even though pictures were provided. So I contacted NamUs and I gave them pictures and I gave them more descriptions of her missing persons because that also wasn't put in there as well. So that was fixed. And then um, in December 11, 2010, I think me and the rest of the world were watching the news on how they found a set of remains on Long Island. Mm-hmm. And um, going back to the interview with the internal affairs officers, they asked us, your sister ever been to Long Island? And I was like, no, Maureen's never been to Long Island. And I was like, I went through her email. There is no Long Island leap. There's nothing there. And I didn't know why they were asking me this. So when they did find the remains in December 11th and December 13th, we got a call from the detective that was an general affairs officer that was actually investigating her missing persons case. He said that he was going to submit our DNA because the ping off the cell phone tower on Long Island after she went missing could be Maureen. So you had mentioned that you and Will, your brother, were like, why does internal affairs coming, which is weird, they are the police for the police. What was that about? That's where I was going to get into the timeline because it's kind of tricky. What it was about is that after Maureen was identified and it was a year after she was identified and found. I requested a sit-down meeting with the Norwich Police Department. I was pregnant with Dominic at this time, and I wanted answers. I believe that I deserve the answers because I really worked really hard alongside these police departments on trying to figure out Maureen's missing person. So I knew I wasn't going to be the one to solve it. I wanted to help in any way. So I requested a sit-down meeting with Norwich on exactly what happened because how is it that we know that she was at this hotel but there's no video we knew that she was at this train station but there's no video like why weren't you guys able to get this video you know so i had a sit-down meeting with them and they told me this is what we did in our investigation they said the moment that they got the missing persons report And they got the passwords from me, which was good because they didn't have to subpoena anybody to get access to our email. They had direct access. They started to track the fact that Maureen never left New York. They called New York City and told them, they was like, listen, like you need to start investigating this because she never left the city. New York City went back to Norwich and say, no, this isn't our case. This is your case. And the chief of detectives looked at me. He goes, if your child goes missing in Walt Disney World, are you traveling all the way up to Connecticut to report your child missing? 
he was like, no, because Orlando police are supposed to be investigating them, not where the person lives. I'm like, yeah, you have that right. And they finally agreed that Norwich would go in plain clothing, not even be in detectives. They weren't even supposed to be outside of Norwich, let alone outside of Connecticut. But they did. They sure did. They went to New York City, and he said, we were sitting at a coffee shop with a laptop going through Murray's email. And there was a client that they had found, and they did a background check on this name, and it came up that he was a New York City police officer. So they called New York City, and they're like, hey, we got an issue. Because she was contacted with a New York City police officer. But I should tell you, this New York City police officer is cleared. Maureen was alive after he was seen. But it was an issue because... He was a police officer. So all of a sudden, they said about 20, 30 minutes later, a black SUV shows up. They get out and they tell Norwich police, hey, we're taking over this case. You guys need to go back to Connecticut. Oh, wow. And that's how internal affairs got involved. And you know what? Thank God they did. Because if they didn't, you think New York City detectives even cared at this point in time? No, they were letting Norwich come in a jurisdiction that they shouldn't have even been investigating at that point in time. Yeah. But yeah. if it wasn't for the internal affairs officer, no one would have really anything to go on. I mean, I don't even know if they have anything to go on, but at least they wouldn't have the things that they do have in her missing person's case because of that. Okay. That makes sense. If I heard you right, internal affairs for NYPD took over because there had been a call from a New York city police officer to Maureen, but he was yes. cleared. And so he, he but it, they got involved because they're like, he shouldn't be doing that, obviously. And so we're going to take over. And and like you said, you're glad they did because they were on top of it more than, you know, NYPD yeah. was like, yeah, Norwich, come on in. We don't care. Yeah, yeah. exactly. They, they didn't care that another police department that even she wasn't even supposed to be there. You know, it was something that they didn't really... But um, this internal affairs officers cared very much about it. They knew the fact, even after investigating this police officer, they knew the fact there was something wrong. Someone that maintains contact with family on a regular basis that isn't just thrown to the streets or, or lost to the streets or, you know, sure. but has this family aspect, all of a sudden it's gone. They knew something was wrong, and they picked up on it very quickly to the point where it went from, okay, New York City police officer had contact with her this weekend. Let's investigate him. But then they knew there was something wrong, like quicker than the New York City detectives that were supposed to be investigating her. Yeah. Person. And so that lasts about two weeks. So therefore, when the internal affairs went back to try to get video, they didn't have it because it's time looped. Sure. It, after a week, it gets erased and starts back over is kind of yeah. what we're saying there. Yeah. And yeah. let me ask you one more thing, or you could help clarify. And I think I understand this too. Is it true that a couple weeks after Maureen vanished in that July, that there was a ping from her phone a couple weeks after out in Long Island. And that's why the question started about, had she ever been to Long Island? So I'm not exactly sure on the timeline of that ping, 
but I do know that's why the question of why they kept on asking if she ever been on Long Island because it was clarified after they called me about the DNA being submitted for the remains that were found on Ocean Parkway that the reason why was because they had the ping yes. off of the cell tower on Long Island. So that was really what directed them to submit her DNA to possibly that would be her remains. And ultimately it was, unfortunately. Yes, yes. We don't know the classification of exactly what happened with that ping or why that ping went. That would be like primitive information for the police to know but obviously it's something that just they need to know and hopefully ultimately it will help in any investigation to try to find out who did this Mm -hmm. shopify's already taken the cash register online helping millions sell billions around the world but did you know shopify can do the same thing at your retail store give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with shopify Shopify Point of Sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell your customers in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse partner that can track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. It's easier than ever to connect with customers online and in line too. Shopify helps drive sales with their nifty plug and play tools to get the word out on TikTok, Instagram, and pretty much any social platform. Shopify has the hardware that'll fit your business. Take payments by phone, turn your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device to alleviate all those sales headaches. And if you ever run into problems, Shopify's award-winning support team is there to smooth things out. Do retail right with Shopify. So sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash LISK. That's L-I-S-K, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash LISK to take your retail business to the next level today. One last time, go to shopify.com slash LISK. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. That covers the timeline through her discovery out on Ocean Parkway, correct? Um, yeah, other than um, when they did identify her, they did come to the house and, you know, tell us. And Suffolk County was actually really amazed because I kept Maureen's emails active for so long. Because if you don't log in to emails over time, they delete your account your account is basically deleted. Yeah, they could go back and subpoena them and it takes a while. But because I continually looked at her emails almost every day, I kept her 
account active. So they were just in case anybody ever needed access to them, they mm-hmm. would just be able to access them right away. And when SCPD took over, what has yeah. that experience been like? And how has that been for you? And how often do they communicate? And where's that at? I think in the beginning, they really didn't know how to handle this case. I think that there was a lot of political issues between the department. Certain things were very confusing at first to the families. Like when we would ask if this is a serial killer case, we were told they can't comment on that. But then when the news release came out, we we hear Soda saying this is a serial killer case. I felt like that was information that should have been told to the families before it was released. And then, of course, you know, the commissioner and the DA going back and forth on how many killers. As family members, you you have emotions. You're emotionally involved with it. Sure. So it, it feels like if there's two department leaders arguing within each other and they can't work together, it makes you feel like, this isn't right. Like, you know, you guys got to get your stuff together and figure this out. We shouldn't be doing this like media wise. You know, that's interesting. You bring that up because episode six, we get into that, how commissioner Dormer and Spoda, the DA are doing this in public through these dueling press conferences. And, and so you're really speaking to that of like why it's important for the public, but especially for you guys who are like, get your crap together before you just air this out. And we find out information by watching Pix 11 or whatever. Yeah. It gets confusing for the families because then we're like, okay, we need the public and we also need the police department, but it's really not the police department. It's the politics behind the police department, the heads that are, it felt in, in the beginning, it felt that, the public couldn't trust them. So therefore, who's the public? If the public has information, are they really going to contact the detectives that are working really hard on this case because of the politics that are up front and the media arguing back and forth? Yeah. So overall, you know, with Suffolk County, now it's been a decade, right? Almost, basically. Yeah. We hope that things are moving and we know they had the press conference in January where they revealed the letters in the belt, supposedly, and then they started a website. And we hope in season two, I'll just say that we have ex-detectives and that sort of thing. And we really want to get the voice of SCPD. Initially, they didn't want to talk to us, but hopefully now they'll realize like, look, this can be a source. This can be helpful. But so many of them just want to clam up and not say anything. And there's politics and ego or whatever it is. Well... And I think it uh, had to do with politics, but it also had to do with in the beginning that Dorma really let a lot of information out that he shouldn't have. And then they had to backtrack and really keep everything really tight to the chest. Honestly, I have to put it this way. As a family member, this case, I think everybody in the public, including you guys and media for keeping this case out in the public eye. However, the information that is needed to catch this person and also needed to convict this person needs to be held close to the chest because without a solid case and you let your information out, you're not going to guarantee a conviction. As a family member, you're thinking about 
the arrest, if it's going to come to an arrest and they're going to find this person, but you're also hoping and praying that they'll have a strong enough case for a conviction. So, I mean, honestly, as a family member, I could understand why the police hold a lot to their chest now. But besides that, that's my own opinion. But um, personally, since the new detective took over this case about, I don't know, maybe five years ago, Mm-hmm. I I talk to that detective almost every week, once a month. I have a great relationship with him. He calls me, see how my kids are doing, see how I'm doing. I could tell you the website that I worked for 10 months. They were trying to figure it out. Um, so it wasn't something that they just kind of like threw out there. They were really maintaining contact with the families and letting them know that they were working on it. Just to clarify, this is referencing the website, gilgonews.com that Suffolk County Police created to help the case. They weren't exactly sure when it was going to be released, but that was maintained to the family. That is great to hear because, you know, it's easy to vilify police in general sometimes, and especially as CPD, because they can be so corrupt and crazy. But ultimately, I want them to have their act together. So you have someone like this detective you're talking about who is in communication and checking in and doing what he can. One of the last questions I have is just, I know you've been very active in this case and doing what you can to move it along. Can you talk about that and, and what some of that looks like? Well, I think after the realization of that I wasn't going to solve my sister's missing slash murder investigation, that everything that I knew, the police knew more. So I started focusing myself on the unidentified victims. Years ago, I created a Facebook page for them called Try to Help Identify the Unidentified on Ocean Parkway. And it basically has all the namest accounts and their pictures and stuff on it. And I did a lot of work trying to go through namest and trying to compare different missing person cases to those images at that point in time. I don't run that page anymore just because of everything with my son. I I couldn't devote the time that that page deserves so someone else runs it. And then while I was doing this, it was actually when um, the killing season was being filmed with Josh and Rachel Mm -hmm. that I came across the peach tattoo from Peaches, which is the mother of the toddler that they identified through DNA. And I was kind of like, tinkling with the color variation as I was tinkering with it something came up in the leaf in the peach there are initials and I don't think anybody knew it so I called Josh and I told Josh I was like hey there's initials in this peach leaf and so contact the police and let them know if they didn't know there's initials in the peach that was a few years back Now we are here today just trying to keep it out public, hoping Mm -hmm. that the public will see the new evidence and maybe someone will remember it and contact the Suffolk County Police Department. Even if they know, like, oh, I've seen that embroidered somewhere, it's part of this company. Or even if it's something that seems silly, I would just, ask anyone to to contact Suffolk County or submit the tip on gilgonews.com because ultimately this is the biggest hope that our families have right now is 
this release of information. To others, it might look like, oh, it was released nine years after they were found. But to us, this is hope right now. Yeah. And we try to remind people, too, just who are listening to the podcast, that keeping a light on it just helps. Yeah. And ultimately, it allows this case to keep on moving because I know there's cases like the Atlantic City um, women that were found deceased. Their case is cold, but this case isn't. And I think it's because of the fact of the detectives won't allow it, the public won't allow it, and the families won't allow it. So as long as that we have all three of those in combined with each other, that we have a better chance of success. Yeah, and I was excited to hear, you know, at this press conference, January 2020, where they talked about using DNA to help identify the five or so that are still unidentified through DNA databases and that sort of thing. And um, I mean, obviously, just to identify this person who I'm sure they have some family out there that are wondering or don't know, and that's how estranged they were, but still, who knows what it could lead to as far as their last date and what details could come out. Yeah, exactly. Identify the victims, you learn their stories. And through their stories, you learn the evidence. They're still nameless. And and I guess in a way that gives whoever that killed them power, because now they're nameless. So it's important for them to be identified, because once they're identified, that power is taken away. Yeah, yeah. So as far as phone records, what can you tell us about Maureen's phone records and then what you know in general about what they're doing to see if there's any connections there? Well, obviously, I can't speak about what the phone records told, <laughs> but sure. um, I can speak about the fact that I know that they want very visually on those phone records. Those phone records on every single victim has been scrutinized and have been referenced. I don't know that matter of factly through the police, but I know that they have. So, honestly, if the answer was in the phone records, I think this case would have been solved very early on. Unfortunately, I don't think the answer is in the phone records, nor do I think it's in the emails. I have my own theory, but it's a theory. <laughs> I think people have seen a lot of TV where, you know, you just track a phone down and it leads to someone. And, and oftentimes it can work. But if this person was using a burner phone, that kind of leads to a dead end pretty quick. They're not as easy to track, and it seems that was the case in some. Like, I think Amber's case, the phones didn't yield much. It was like a new number, a new burner. And to your point, I think if there was a conclusion through phone records, it would have happened. Yeah, if it did, like I said, if it was that easy, it would have been solved. But unfortunately, it's not that easy. And like early on, I used to think, well, why don't we just match phone records? To the others and then I realized oh well it probably isn't that easy because they probably thought about this before I did yeah. <laughs> so um, I think that as human beings we always want to look at something and look at it as if okay well why didn't they do this why didn't do that but sometimes the answer to that is just a simple answer that if it was that easy it would have been solved absolutely so you brought this up and I would love to hear it. What is your theory? Of course, you don't have to name names. You know, I don't I don't know how far your theory goes. Yeah, it's not about a suspect, but it's about how this person was able to uh, get them. I think that he stalked them. I think that he was stalking them and watching them. 
I'm waiting. Yeah, because it, it, you know, from talking with Sarah, they had kind of had their hotel that they kind of worked out of and, you know, mostly in calls. And then she was trying to figure out, does Penn Station, that's where she said she was robbed, correct? Um, no, outside the hotel. Outside the hotel, she said she was robbed. And when she called you for the ride from Chris, was that, was she around Penn Station there? Like trying to she get was a... at Penn Station. Yep, she was at Penn Station. And that was exactly what she told my brother as well. And uh, she was waiting for uh, the 12 o'clock, the midnight train that she would use whatever she had to, you know, left to pay for that train. One last question I have is just getting to know the families, you know, of the other victims. And if you want to share some of that and what that was like and, and the support it brought, I hope, and I'm sure the support you brought, you know, is some of them were not as in a good a place as you were. Yeah. I think in the beginning when the first family that I met was um, Megan Waterman's family because she was the one that was first identified. And I think that we were also just kind of like standby watching all the news. And I got in touch with Lorraine. And then when Maureen, Melissa, Megan, and Amber were identified, I felt the need that I wanted to connect with the other families because they knew what I was going through. And they understood the things that was going through. Like in being a family member of a murdered victim, it's very different than losing someone to a different situation. And it's also being a family member of a murder victim of a serial killer that's unknown is a very different feeling. And you really can't talk to other people about this because they don't understand or they criticize because of the situation that um, these girls, women were, you know, in at that time. So I think that we all wanted to know each other so that we could also talk to each other. It was a form of therapy to be able to kind of get to know each of the victims' lives as well as their families and, and, and know that we're like we're there for each other. Because if we couldn't be there for each other, who is going to be there for us? You know, even sometimes your own family can't understand that. I'm not saying mine, but I'm saying. Sure. So we quickly wove in our own kind of like support bubble in the beginning. We had our visual in June. So they were found in December and we had the first visual in June just to kind of have a visual of our own so that we could all get together. And we all met each other at that time. And Shannon was still missing at this time. And Mary came with Cherie. And then we planned on having a visual for the one-year anniversary, which things got very interesting and, and very sad that day because I don't know if you know this, but we were actually on Long Island, me and Lorraine. We were putting crosses on the areas that Maureen, Melissa, Megan, and Amber were found. We went to a, a diner, and I got a call from a news media guy saying that they shut down airspace to come to Oak Beach. And by the time we got there, the police commissioner was there already. And that was the day they found Shannon. And it, it was pretty, it was very sad. Yeah, that is surreal that it happened. You were there for the one year anniversary, basically, of when all the four were found. And then they find Shannon. Mm-hmm. 
Well, is there anything that um, that we've missed? Yeah, I think I covered, I think, obviously, the clear. wanted to make it clear on the police investigation on our missing persons, because I think that was important, because I do kind of feel bad that I threw Norris under the bus without knowing exactly what they did. And, and you know, they really were really tr- trying to do their best. Well, and I appreciate you sharing about SCPD because they get a lot of blowback and some of it rightly so, but for your sake Mm -hmm. and for the other families, I'm glad there are some competent detectives that are in communication and working hard. And it's so easy to sit on the sidelines and be like, you know what I would have done? Yeah. But I'm glad they're working hard. And of course, we hope they solve this and figure it out. Yeah. And it's like, as a family member, you definitely want to have hope and strength in the police department that is investigating your sister's murder. Without that, I mean, what hope do you have? You know, there was time that I just had to stop reading media reports because sometimes it, it would get me upset because media criticizes the police department in this case. However, the police department in this case, yes, some of them are responsible for the failing of the missing person report and the investigation. But we have to also put in fact that the media is also to blame somewhat of how these women were portrayed in the beginning. They were portrayed by the media as if they were low-life women that were lost in this world. That ultimately is the reason why I started speaking up on this case. So if we really want to talk about the injustice of the police department, we also have to talk about the injustice of some of the media reports, too. And it's better. It's better now. And I think that with the family speaking up and say, hey, listen, no, you, you have it wrong. This isn't how Maureen was or this wasn't how Melissa was. Because ultimately, in the beginning of Maureen going missing, I reached out to Nancy Grace. I reached out to my local day paper. I reached out to New York News. None of them wanted a report on a missing escort. None of them. It was only until she became the serial killer victim already dead that they took notice. Yeah. But I do think the media now, they're more aware on how they report on these type of cases and how important it is to report on these type of cases Um, because all human beings deserve respect. They deserve investigation and they deserve to be reported on when they go missing. And it doesn't matter if they were sex workers, drug addicts, you know, a teacher, a mother, doesn't matter. They should all be respected in the same way. Well said. And I think you're right that that reporting is changing some for the better where, you know, they are reporting more and they're not just saying, you know, an escort, you know, like you don't hear, oh, a lawyer's missing. You hear about a guy. You can talk about this person who was in this situation, regardless of what it was and regardless of how they got there. Yeah. Or their struggles. I mean, and I think the important thing that us, our families did myself, Cherie, Mary, Lynn, Amanda, even Kim, we did something so different. We forced the media to take accountability of the reporting as with other victims of serial killers that were escorts or were women that were marginalized. Their names were never posted anywhere. I mean, people will forget 
who the victims of serial killers were once the serial killers identified. I think what we did as families was to really put our foot down and be like, well, no, this is what really happened. This is who they were. And you need to respect the families that we don't want reporting in a way that where you're calling them prostitute. Cause I don't like that word. I think that's dehumanizing. It's a way to disconnect the human being in my own opinion. And I think that a lot of the family members agree that we did change the world a little bit on how these women cases are being looked at, especially in law enforcement and media. So I think that we could put that as accomplishment of being an advocate. Well, and I just don't think it's an opinion. I think, I really do think that's a fact that what you guys did really changed the whole tenor, the whole approach. And thank you. I, I, I truly respect and appreciate your reporting on this case. Um, I, I obviously was listening to it um, and I was pretty amazed that it was a true podcast, not one based on theories that have been in the past of other podcasts, that this one was more reporting in a respectful way, a matter of fact way, and evidence-based, which is important because we need those types of reporting. So I appreciate you. Thank you so much. It really does mean a lot. And please keep safe. Keep Dominic safe. Keep washing those hands and everything. I and I hope we have turned the corner on this and just life gets back to semi-normal. Yeah. You stay healthy. All right. Thanks, Missy. You have a good afternoon. You too. Bye. Bye. We'd like to thank Missy for taking the time out of her busy schedule to revisit such painful events and to share all she's done to help keep the case moving forward. And we're grateful for you, the listener, for joining us on this special episode. To help others find the podcast, we'd be grateful if you'd take a couple minutes to rate, review, and tell a friend or two. Please stay subscribed for more bonus content while we work to get season two out. For more information, including exclusive photos and videos, go to liskpodcast.com. L-I-S-K podcast.com. If you suspect human trafficking, contact the National Human Trafficking Hotline by texting HELP to 233-733. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit